The following podcast is from Arlington Countryside Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org. My uh, townhouse that I live in is got like a circular uh, layout to it. You come in, there's a living room, and it's kind of an L-shaped living room, and there's a hallway that leads back to the kitchen. And so basically what you've got is just like a racetrack, just like a circle, right? The reason why this comes to mind is this weekend, my grandkids have been with us. Our family from Minnesota are in, they've got two children, and then our grandson from Gurney was with us all day yesterday. So we got three grandkids, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old, right? And it can get intense, right? It can get really pretty intense. And because we've got this circular pattern in our townhome, the kids feel compelled to take as many laps as they possibly can, all right? And I don't want to exaggerate, but I bet you yesterday, I bet you our grandkids, I don't want to exaggerate, so I'm going to say, I bet you they took like 9,000 laps, okay? Just constant motion. And they're running and they're walking, they're pushing toys, they're pulling toys, they're chasing each other, and they're just, and they're screaming, they're laughing, they're crying, they're fighting, right? Every lap, there's a different emotion being expressed, right? But, but it's just constant whirlwind of noise and activity, and it is intense. I love it. But it's exhausting, and it reminds me of why children are born to the young, right? They have so much more energy and so much more patience, because at my age, like at the end of the day, I'm dead. I mean, it's fun, but it's exhausting. It's intense. Now, here's the deal. I'll tell you what makes it so intense. When you're around little children, they are so dependent upon you for everything. Isn't that true? And for those of you who have an infant or a small child in your home, you're on 24-7, aren't you? Because they depend upon you for everything. If they're thirsty, if they're hungry, if they perform a bodily function, all of a sudden it becomes your responsibility, right? And you're changing a diaper or you're wiping them or something. It was like, what in the world, right? And They don't know how to negotiate. They don't know how to deal with conflict. So you're constantly stepping in as a referee and you're straightening things out and you're keeping them from killing each other. And it's just, but it's one thing after another. It's constant because they are so dependent upon you. And you know as well as I do that if the, all the adults were to disappear in an infant's life or if all the adults were to disappear in a small child's life, They'd be doomed. They'd be doomed because they can't do it. They rely upon the adults in their world for their personal hygiene, for their hydration, for their nutrition, for their physical safety. And man, if it wasn't there, they'd be in a world of hurt. That's for sure. Now, with all that in mind, as I was reminded of all that and spending time with my uh, grandchildren, I wanted to read to you the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. 
That's really an interesting verse. And you know what jumps out at me as I read that? What sticks out to me from that verse is, we better figure out what it means to become like a child. Right? Because Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So I think priority one is figuring out, okay, what does he mean then? What does he mean become like a little child? Here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest to you that when Jesus says you've got to become like a little child, what he means, he's talking about complete dependence. Just like a little child. Complete dependence for everything you need, completely dependent upon him. That those who come to Christ for salvation know they could not possibly do it on their own. That apart from Christ, they are doomed. That they are completely dependent upon him. And so when Jesus said, you've got to become like a child, he's saying, hey, you've got to come to realize your only hope is me. That you've got to give up the self-effort. You've got to become completely dependent upon me. And then you can enter into my kingdom. And so what we're going to see today as we look at the third chapter of the book of Titus is that those who truly have come to know God, for those who have experienced forgiveness, you come to realize that you're totally dependent upon him for these spiritual blessings. We couldn't possibly do it ourselves. And in that sense, we come to him as little children. And so we're in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first eight verses here. And um, what I want you to see in the first couple of verses we're looking at is that um, there's seven imperatives. There's seven commands in just two brief verses. And it reminds us, if you remember the very first sermon on Titus, as I was laying the groundwork for our study in this book, talked about the fact that the style of the book of Titus, the style of the writing is very curt. It's very business-like. It's very, boom, just direct. And so it has a lot of commands, a lot of just direct imperatives here. And we see that. this These verses are a classic example of the style of writing that the Apostle Paul is using here. Because just in that slide there, there's seven different commands that we're to be obedient to. So check it out. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. And so here's the seven imperatives. Submit, be obedient, always ready, not slander, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show true humility. A sketch of what gospel living looks like. Real quickly, let's consider these commands. First of all, the idea of submitting. And specifically, it's submit to the government and its officers. To the first century Christian, this was such a big issue. Reason why is because in the region of uh, the world in which Christianity was born, in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, that area of the world at that time was under Roman occupation. And so for the believers, 
they were looking uh, for the uh, Jews. They were looking for a Messiah and they really had kind of a military political kind of expectation of the Messiah. And they just were kind of worked under the assumption when the Messiah comes, he's going to get the Romans off our back. He's going to kick the Romans out of our country. Surely the Messiah will do that for us. Well, that really tripped a lot of people up because Jesus wasn't about political power. He wasn't about military power. That wasn't his kingdom. That wasn't his primary concern. And so he didn't address that. And that tripped a lot of people up. And a lot of people rejected him as a, as a Messiah because he didn't meet their expectations of what they thought a Messiah would be like, right? Well, even in the church, they still struggled with this issue because Roman Romans, the Romans were their oppressors and the Caesars were highly immoral men. And so this continued to be a nagging question within the church. Do we really have to put up with this? What is, what is supposed to be our, our relationship to Caesar and to the government and that kind of thing? They are very, you know, kind of tied up in knots about this. And folks, the Christian moral code is clear. This very issue is addressed over and over again in the New Testament. And the, 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 the code of conduct given to believers every single time was submit. Be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws of the land. Pray for those in leadership. Just be a good citizen. God's ultimately in charge. And because of that, you can rest well at night. You're to submit to be a good citizen. And that be obedient, that's in the context, it's be obedient to the government. Now, of course, there's the rare exceptions. If, if, if the government calls upon you to, to do something immoral, something that's directly contradicting the word of God, well, then you have to be like a conscientious objector or something. And you got to say, nope, not going to do it. But that's relatively rare. Generally speaking, we're called upon, hey, submit, be obedient. Always be ready to do good. The idea of being a good citizen goes on. Also talks about don't slander. It's the old advice from our folks. If you don't have anything good to say about someone, what? Don't say anything at all, right? Don't slander people. If you can't speak well of someone, just keep your mouth shut. To avoid quarreling. To avoid quarreling. That we're to be people of peace. That we're to be gentle. Being gentle isn't about being weak. It's not about being a human doormat. Being gentle is about not insisting upon your rights all the time. And not insisting on you getting your way all the time, but being a gentle person. And then lastly, it says, show true humility. I like the way that ESV phrases that the English Standard Version of the Bible uses the phrase, show perfect courtesy. I like that. Show perfect courtesy or show true humility. The qualifier in the verse to show true humility is show true humility to everyone. That there's not a person who doesn't deserve your courtesy. There's not a person so low that they're beneath you showing common respect and courtesy and humility towards them. You know, I think you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat wait staff in a restaurant. I think you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat that teenager behind the counter in the fast food restaurant. And it's the idea of showing true humility to everyone. Gospel living, it always fleshes itself out in how we treat other people, right? 
It's always true. So now let's go on in Titus. What I want you to see now as, as we move into uh, the next few verses is we've got a classic before and after photo. We're all familiar with before and after photos, right? They, they make a sharp contrast and they, they kind of leave you an impression. Like before photo of somebody who, who like is overweight, needs to lose some weight, and then they get on this miraculous diet and they exercise, and then they've got the after photo, and they're thinner and they're healthier, and the before and after photo, it's like, whoa, I mean, obvious difference. You've probably seen the photos before of somebody who's healthy and normal, and then after three years, you know, being addicted to crystal meth. And then they show the photo of what they look like after three years of taking meth. And it's like, whoa, the before and after is just like shocking. Well, what we have in Titus 3 here is a before and after photo of us. Before we came to know Christ, before we crossed the line of faith, and then what happened afterwards and how the photo changed. And so I want you to see in Titus 3, 3, the before photo. And the before photo shows our true condition apart from Christ. Once we, once we too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. Seven descriptive terms. What the before photo looked like. We were foolish We were disobedient, we were misled, we were slaves, full of evil, full of envy, and we hated each other. That's a rather ugly picture, isn't it? I mean, that's grim, sobering, and yet that's God's assessment of us before we came to him. Foolish. Life apart from God is the epitome of futility. That people seek out meaning and purpose in life apart from him, apart from him and his ways. And it's the most foolish, futile venture ever because they're not going to find what they're looking for. It's foolish. Disobedient. Disobedient. Don't care about or concern yourself about the ways of God. And if nothing else, even if you're the most highly moral unbeliever in the world, you're violating the command, you're disobeying the command to believe on Christ. You're misled. Whatever alternative worldview you've adopted to get through life, You're deceived. You're misled. You're not following the truth of God. You might be sincere, but nevertheless, you're misled. You're a slave. It speaks of being a slave to many lusts and pleasures. And it's a reminder to us of what Bob Dylan sang it about. I love the song by Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody. And you know what the truth is? Everybody serves somebody. There's some people who are very... uh, critical towards religion and towards uh, spirituality and God, and they're like, uh, you know, it cramps your style and, you know, it binds you up. And But God's Word teaches the exact opposite. 
that that's how you find freedom. And the person who's truly enslaved is the one who can't control their impulses. The person who follows every evil desire that, that crosses their heart or mind and they can't control their lives and they're slaves to lusts and pleasure that were full of evil. There's no limit to the things we can think and do that are evil. We're full of envy. I can relate to that one, full of envy. You know what? Even as a believer, I struggle with comparing myself to others. I can't help it. It's one of the reasons why I got off Facebook. <laughs> it is. Because I couldn't help but compare that place where I live with the place that other people live. I couldn't help but compare my, the size of my church with the size of other people's churches. And so on and so forth. Have you ever fallen in that trap of comparing yourself to others? Final straw for me was dude I went to high school with. Just total doofus. <laughs> Dumb as a box of rocks. And he's already retired and living in this huge house on the beach in Florida. And every time I saw that, I was like, you know what I mean? And I was like, whoa, I know I'm not supposed to compare, but this isn't fair, you know? We all do that. But what is the trap when we compare ourselves to others? We either feel superior, which is not a good thing, or we feel inferior, right? I can't think of times where I've compared myself to someone else and said, oh, dead even. Nope. Either I feel superior or I feel inferior. And if I feel inferior, you know what it does? It brings up jealousy. It brings up jealousy. It brings up envy. It brings up resentment. And it's bad stuff. So even as Christians, we can struggle with that if we're not careful. And finally, we hated each other. That the world, apart from God, is characterized by fractured relationships. That we have a hard time getting along. As I was thinking through this, here's the thought I wanted to share with you right now. That we lose patience with unbelievers when we forget our own past. That if ever you find yourself judgmental or critical of those who don't know God, and you're thinking, how can they be so screwed up? How can they be so perverted? How can they be so selfish? How can they be so hateful? You know, and we become impatient and critical towards them. I'm suggesting that you've forgotten where you came from. Where you would be apart from the grace of God. And you see, that's what should give us infinite patience and grace and love for the lost, for those who don't yet know God. Is That was us. But we forget that so easily. You know, and all of a sudden we get proud spiritually and we're very pleased with ourselves and we look at others who don't know God yet and we think they're less of a person. And that's sad. And it's because we've forgotten our own past. So there's the before photo. Now let's look at the after photo, okay, to get some encouragement to understand what God has done for us. The after photo is God's response to our condition. And I love how Titus 3, verse 4 starts. It starts with the phrase, but when God. But when God. And folks, that should be the testimony of every person in this room. That you've got this gross, horrible before photo. We were a mess. But 
when God. And it's the picture of intervention. It's the picture of God breaking through into our lives. It's though, even though it seemed like everything was hopeless, but when God burst on the scene, came into our lives, everything changed. And I love that. So check it out. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So, no hard case is too hard. No one you know is too far gone. And we've experienced this forgiveness not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. You know what's one of the most common misconceptions people have, one of the most common fallacies that people have, is this. They, assuming they acknowledge that God exists and that we're accountable to him and that kind of thing, people have this mindset, that it, it, it's like balancing a scale. Like, they understand that They've done bad things like, yeah, they have hateful thoughts and maybe some racist thoughts. And, yeah, they lust occasionally. And, and you know, they, they understand that they've got some bad attitudes and they say some naughty words from time to time when they lose their temper. And so all these things weigh down the scale, right? And that they owe God and God's maybe not real pleased with them. And they understand that. But here's here's where their thinking goes wrong. They're like, OK, the way I got to fix this is you got to balance the scale. And so. I gotta start going to church. I gotta start obeying the Ten Commandments. Hey, I was baptized as a baby. Uh, what else? Um, I'll read my Bible. Wait, I'll start putting money in the offering plate. And you know what? Woohoo! I'm even. I've balanced the scales. God's gonna be really, really proud of me. I worked hard enough. I was intentional enough. And it paid off. People, I'll tell you what. The people that live in your neighborhood, a lot of the people you work with, this is exactly their theology. That, yeah, I've done bad, but I've done plenty of good, and I think it's going to be okay in the end. I've balanced the scale. And you see, God's word comes along like in Titus chapter 3 and says, nope, not the way it works. Not the way it works. You could never balance the scale. And we're declared righteous, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of the mercy of God. And that word mercy means to withhold deserved punishment. And so what we deserve for our sins is condemnation, but God withholds that. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And instead, he showers down his grace and he gives us what we don't deserve. And that is forgiveness and eternal life. And it makes all the difference in the world. And that's an understanding of salvation. Now, he reveals a few things to us. What, what does God reveal to us as, as it uh, talks about in this passage? Where it, it says two things. It says he's revealed to us his kindness and his love. That as you came to know Christ, those were two revelations, two epiphanies that you had. You learned something about God's kindness towards you and God's love towards you. His kindness towards you. Look at Romans 2, verse 4. It says, don't you see 
how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And that's why God waits for you, why God is patient with you. So you would respond to him and receive the forgiveness that comes in Christ. And his kindness is expressed for the very purpose of allowing you to come to him. That's the epiphany that took place in each of our lives. The other thing is it expressed his love. He revealed his love to us. I love the fact that, you know the word Paul uses here in the original language, he was writing in in the Greek language. The word he uses here for his love was revealed to us is exactly our word, philanthropy. That it was God's philanthropy that was revealed to us. Literally, his love for the human race. That's pretty cool, right? And that's what was revealed as you and I crossed the line of faith. And I want you to notice here in what God has done for us, the he, he, he versus what you and I did, the us. So check it out. Directly from this passage, here's what God has done for us. He saved us, all right? He saved us. He washed away our sins. He generously poured out the Spirit on us. He made us right, and he gave us confidence. Do you see that? That it's all God? It's what God did, God did, God did. It's he, 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 he. And you and I, we're passive passive receivers of it. It's being done on our behalf, and we're just getting it done for us. And so it's... It's not we together saved ourselves or we together washed ourselves or we generously poured out the Holy Spirit on ourselves. It's he, 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 he. Over and over again, the focus is on God. That those who've truly come to know God understand that it's all him. We couldn't have done it ourselves. Here's the point I want to make. Human effort is excluded. In our salvation, in our forgiveness, human effort is completely excluded. Our salvation is all from God. It's very telling to listen to someone when they try explaining what in the world makes you think you're going to go to heaven. Or what makes you think you're a child of God. You think you're forgiven? Why do you think you're forgiven? I don't get it. Very interesting to hear how a person explains that. Because there's basically two stories you'll hear, right? The first story is this. A person who will answer that question by saying, Well, I'm really not too bad of a person. And I go to church. And I read my Bible. And I put money in the offering plate. And I follow the Ten Commandments, and I follow the Beatitudes, and I pray the Lord's Prayer, and I, 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 I. It's all self-focused, self-centered. It's what I have done. There's no dependence upon God at all. I'll take care of business. I'll make amends. I'll balance the scales. It's all good. Don't worry about it. I got it. Right? That's what the person's saying. As opposed to the other person who, when they try answering that question, they they say, Jesus died for me. God loved me and drew me to himself. God showed me my need for salvation, and I, I pray to receive him. And the focus is all on God. 
Jesus, what he's done for me, what he's done on my behalf. And do you see the world of difference between those two responses? Anybody who talks about I, 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 I doesn't get it. But the person who says he, 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 and I'm not laughing there, okay, I'm referring to God, okay? The person who says he died for me, he rose again from the dead, he did everything he could to rescue me, he saved me, they get it. They get it. And so take a look at these. He saved us. He saved us from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. He saved us from the power of sin. We're no longer enslaved to our own lusts. And he saves us from the presence of sin. The day is going to come where we're not going to have to struggle with sin at all. And we'll be in a perfect environment. He saves us from all that. He washed away our sins. It's the picture of ceremonial cleansing, where where the stains, the, the, the dirt, dirtiness of sin is just washed away. And we're clean. That's not referring to baptism. It's not referring to baptism. It's referring to the spiritual act that God does within our heart. But I'll tell you what, baptism is a picture of it. Baptism is a symbol of it. And on Easter, in a few weeks, we're going to be having some baptisms, right? And when we put the people underneath the water of baptism and bring them up, it's symbolic of the cleansing that God has done in their life. And those baptismal waters don't actually wash the sins away. That's a spiritual reality that's already taken place. But what the baptism does, it gives us a physical picture of what's already happened in that person's life spiritually, right? And so that's the idea. I want to encourage you. Get baptized on Easter. It's going to be awesome. We already have seven or eight people who've committed to being baptized on Easter. We're excited about that. We'd love to take the whole service doing nothing but baptizing. I'll dunk people while we're singing, while we're taking the offering. We'll just, we'll just keep a steady rotation going, okay? We won't, I, w- I won't stop. I will be ready for that day, okay? But you've got to respond. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been baptized yet as a believer, take that step of obedience and be baptized, okay? Mark your communication card before you put it in the offering bag today. Let us know you're thinking about it or planning on it. We've got a baptism class coming up the Sunday previous to the baptisms. We'd love to have you be a part of that. All right? He washed away our sins. He generously poured out the Spirit on us. Um, do you know that at the moment you crossed the line of faith, God gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit took up residence within you when you trusted in Christ. And God didn't give you like a little smidgen of the Holy Spirit or a couple of drops of the Holy Spirit. He gave you the complete person of the Holy Spirit. That means you have unlimited potential spiritually. That a whole new world has opened up to you as far as living a life that pleases him and being a blessing to others. And he did this generously. He poured out the Holy Spirit on us. He made us right. It's the picture of being declared righteous, of justification, that God has declared us innocent in his court. And then he gave us confidence. Now, this isn't confidence that you look good, therefore strut your stuff. It's not confidence like, yeah, you'll kill your next sales presentation at work. This is confidence that you have eternal life. That's pretty sweet confidence. For as long as the human race has existed, we've struggled with the fear of death. Because what's on the other side? And is God going to embrace me or reject me? And what is that going to be like? You know, and, and to have confidence that when you die, you'll be in the presence of him and it's all going to be good and it'll be okay. What a great confidence that is to have. 
I hear so many people who have this attitude, ah, no one can know for sure if they're going to go to heaven. You just got to cross your fingers and hope. Really? That's what you're going to settle for? Cross your fingers and hope? Good luck with that, right? Do you want to live with that? That's your choice. I prefer to have a little bit more assurance than that, you know? And so we are given the confidence that we have eternal life, and therefore we don't have to fear death. I've heard people say, I've even heard clergy say, no one can be sure. No one can be sure. You just got to hope. You just got to try hard and hope it works out. And I've heard even clergy say, uh, anyone who thinks that they're going to heaven for sure, they're arrogant. They're being way too cocky. Ridiculous. That's the most bogus thing I've ever heard. Okay. Well, I've heard a lot of bogus things. That was one of the most bogus things I've ever heard. Okay. Because God's word teaches you can know for sure that you have eternal life if you've given your heart and life to Christ, if you're trusting in him. There's nothing cocky about that. Folks, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I'm awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome. It's because I have an awesome Savior. Me, I'm a wretch. I'm as selfish and as snarky as they come. Okay? So if it was up to me, I don't think it's going to work out too well. Right? But I'm confident that I'm going to heaven because Jesus is awesome. And Jesus is perfect. And Jesus is the great and effective Savior. And because he is so awesome... I'm confident that I'm going to be with him when I die. And that confidence is a gift he gives us. So we get to the end. Titus 3, verse 8. Here's the summary command. The summary command to wrap all this up is, okay, now that you've found out what God has done for you, you've seen the before and after photos, the bottom line is do good. Now that you've been made one of God's children, live a life of good works. Titus 3, 8. This is the trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. We see our salvation's all from God. That He did it. We didn't do it. But once we've experienced that salvation, now we're to live a life of good works. God grace leads us to living a life of good works. I want you to look, and this is the last scripture we'll look at as we wrap things up, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Because I want you to see that Paul wrote the exact same concepts to the church in Ephesus, emphasizing how it all breaks down. Ephesians 2, verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. Okay, so up till now, we understand, right? It's not about us. It's about him. That salvation is a free gift. It's about his mercy. It's about his grace. Now look what it says. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now that you're one of his children, you're to live a life of good, a life of blessing others. Christian, I want to tell you this. If you seek to find meaning and fulfillment in life in any other way, you're going to meet with tremendous disappointment and emptiness. If you think the key to a fulfilling life is pursuing your career or pouring yourself exclusively into your family, 
or self-actualizing and losing a bunch of weight and getting in shape and or whatever. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to do it. God's Word teaches that once you're a follower of Christ, what you've been created to do is live a life of good works. Now, that's going to look a lot different for each of us. Because how I live out my life of good works is going to look very different than how you live out your life of good works. It depends upon our personalities, the gifts and talents that God has given us, God's calling on our life. But wherever God has placed you, whatever God has set before you in your life, you're called upon to do good all the time, to live a life of blessing to others. And you know what? This will look tremendously different depending on the season of life that you're in. Let me give you a couple of examples. Those of you who have small children at home, you have an infant at home or or, or small children, you know what? It's intense, like what we talked about at the beginning, right? And, And so for many of you, your good works life is keeping that kid alive and healthy and feeling nurtured, and that's your ministry. That's all you have the capacity for at this point because it's intense, And young mothers understand that. Amen? Okay. I expected a little bit better than that, but that was good enough. Okay. I think of the elderly. I think of those who've experienced a decline in their energy and in their health. They don't get around the way that they used to and have certain health issues. And you know what? They can't serve and do the life of good works that they once did. They physically can't. But you know what? It's those people that turn into tremendous prayer warriors who are praying for the church. They're praying for me. They're praying for their friends and their family. And that's their life of good works because of the season of life that they're in. So folks, whatever your health is, whatever your time commitments are, whatever talents and gifts God has given you, it's going to look very different. But you concern yourself with doing the will of God in your life and living a life of good works. I hope you've received the gift of God. I encourage you, if you've been searching for God, just receive the gift out of his hand. You you don't have to try harder. Salvation isn't something you achieve, it's something you receive. You just take the gift out of God's hands and it's all good. And then once you've been made a child of God through faith in him, then get busy. Do good. Allow God to use you. Be a blessing and see the fulfillment it brings to your life. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Arlington Countryside Church, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org.